Chapter One of Abigail Adams and Her Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chufi Galeazzi, Ronit Park, California. Abigail Adams and Her Times by Laura Elizabeth Howe Richards. Chapter One Begins at the Beginning. Seventeen hundred and forty four george the second on the throne of england snuffy old drone from the german hive charles edward stuart bonnie prince charlie making ready for his great coup which the next year was to cast down said george from the throne and set charles edward thereupon as rightful lawful prince for while be king but charlie and which ended in culloden and the final downfall and dispersion of the scottish stuarts in france louis the fifteenth lord of misrule shepherding his people toward the abyss with what skill was in him at war with england at war with hungary frederick of prussia alone standing by him in europe generally a seething condition which is not our immediate concern in america seething also discontent indignation rising higher and higher under british imposition not british either being the work of britain's german ruler not of her people yet quelled for the moment by war with france i am not writing a history far from it i am merely throwing on the screen in the fashion of to-day a few scenes to make a background for my little pen picture play what is really our immediate concern is that on november eleventh of this same year seventeen forty four was born to the wife of reverend william smith of weymouth massachusetts a daughter baptized abigail parson smith was a notable figure of the times not a great man but one of character intelligence and cultivation he married a daughter of colonel john quincy so my heroine was a cousin i cannot tell in what precise degree to dorothy q of poetic pictorial fame cousin too her grandmother having been a norton to half boston the cultivated and scholarly half parson smith kept a diary as dry a document as i have often read he had no time to spare and his brief entries are abbreviated down to the finest possible point for example we read that by my good i am asd and have am asd at my s and do use d sol prom by thy god never to t to s ag this is puzzling at first sight but the practised reader will after some study make out that the good parson writing for himself alone was really saying by my god i am assured and even am assured at my strength and do now this day solemnly promise by thy god never to tempt to sin again even this is somewhat cryptic but we are glad of the assurance the more that we find the poor gentleman still troubled in spirit a week later lord get me s to rest the e so prej to me lord i am ashamed of it and resolve to s e t by thy s which being interpreted is lord grant me strength to resist the evil so prejudicial to me lord i am ashamed of it and resolve to shun evil temptation by thy strength whatever the temptation was we may not know possibly he was inclined to extravagance in certain matters of personal dignity and adornment we read of his paying fifteen pounds for my wig and again at boston paid mr oliver for a cut wig ten pounds but this is nothing 
parson smith came of kent folk and may have had private means beside the salary of eight hundred dollars do we not read that samuel adams barber bill for three months shaving and dressing was one hundred and seventy five pounds paid by the colony of massachusetts necessary expenses were also heavy december fourth seventeen forty nine paid brother smith for a barrel of flour fifteen pounds eleven and three but on the other hand he sold his horse to mr jackson for two hundred pounds seventeen fifty one was an eventful year on april twenty third we read weymouth meeting-house took fire about half an hour after ten o'clock at night and burnt to the ground in about two hours this is all parson smith has to say about it but the boston post-boy of april twenty ninth tells us that last tuesday night the old meeting-house in weymouth was burnt to the ground and three barrels of gunpowder the town stock being in the loft blew up with a great noise tis uncertain by what means the fire happened paul tory the town poet says of it our powder stock kept under lock with flints and bullets were by dismal blast soon swiftly cast into the open air the poem hints at incendiaries i'm satisfied they do reside somewhere within the town therefore no doubt you'll find them out by searching up and down on trial them we will condemn the sentence we will give them execute without dispute not being fit to live this was a heavy blow to minister and congregation in fact to the whole community for the meeting-house was the centre and core of the village life meeting-house cotton mather found no just ground in scripture to apply such a trope as church to a home for public assembly sabbath or more often lord's day these are the puritan names which happily we have not yet wholly lost the early meeting-houses were very small that of haverhill was only twenty-six feet long and twenty wide they were oftenest set on a hilltop partly as a landmark partly as a lookout in case of prowling indians the building or raising of a meeting-house was a great event in the community every citizen was obliged by law to share in the work or the expense every man must give a certain amount of nails contributions were levied for lumber for labor of horses and men and for rum and cakes to regale the workers when the medford people built their second meeting-house they provided for the workmen and bystanders five barrels of rum one barrel of good brown sugar a box of fine lemons and two loaves of sugar as a natural consequence two-thirds of the frame fell and many were injured in northampton in seventeen thirty eight ten gallons of rum were bought for eight pounds to raise the meeting-house and the village doctor got three pounds for setting his bone jonathan strong and three pounds ten for setting ebenezer burt's thigh which had somehow through the rum or the raising both gotten broken finally it was realized that rum and raising did not go well together and the workmen had to wait till night for their liquor once up the meeting-house became the centre of village life on the green outside stood the stocks the whipping-post the pillory the cage we are told that the first man to occupy the boston stocks was the carpenter who made them his charge for the lumber being considered over high the pillory was much frequented by quakers and other non-orthodox persons here too were horse-blocks and rows of stepping-stones for muddy days 
the concord horse block was a fine one it was erected by the women of the town each housewife giving a pound of butter toward the expense on the walls and door of the meeting-house were nailed grinning heads of wolf and bear killed partly for safety possibly more for the reward fifteen shillings for a live wolf ten for a dead one we are not told what was done with the live wolves a man in newbury killed seven wolves in one year but that is nothing we learn from the history of roxbury that in seventeen twenty five in one week in september twenty bears were killed within two miles of boston wolves were far more dreaded than bears and save in this one remarkable instance far more abundant in seventeen twenty three ipswich was so beset by wolves that children could not go to meeting or to school without a grown attendant in the early days the meeting-house was unpainted paint would have been thought a sinful extravagance the eighteenth century however brought laxer ideas brought also cheaper paint and the result was a sudden access of gaiety pomfret connecticut painted its meeting-house bright yellow instantly wyndham near by voted that its meeting-house be colored something like the pomfret meeting-house killingly in turn gave orders that the colouring of the body of our meeting-house should be like the pomfret meeting-house and the roof should be coloured red but brooklyn carried off the palm with a combination of orange chocolate and white which must have been startling even in seventeen sixty two and which would surely have sent cotton mather into convulsions had he been alive to see wolf's heads outside the meeting-house inside the village powder magazine it was the safest place because there was never any fire in the meeting-house sometimes in the steeple sometimes under the roof beams there the powder closet was if a thunderstorm came on during service the congregation ran out and waited under the trees till it was over few meeting-houses boasted a bell the shrill toot of a horn the clear blast of a conch shell or the roll of a drum gave the signal for prayer and brought the villagers hurrying from their doors and across the green to the meeting-house in east hadley the man who blew the conch received three dollars a year for his services the drummer was better paid receiving fourteen shillings of the town's money this digression on meeting-houses drawn from mrs alice morse earle's delightful sabbath in puritan new england may be pardoned if it gives some idea of the disaster so briefly recorded by parson smith neither parson nor parishioners were one whit discouraged however on may sixteenth it is true they kept a fast to bewail the burning of our meeting-house but on august seventh we read began to raise weymouth meeting-house three days and a half about it and on september first met in our new meeting-house i preached what heroic labor what depth and height of earnest purpose what self-denial and sacrifice these eight brief words represent we may well imagine but parson smith gives us no help the thing was done there was no more to say about this time we begin to find ominous entries in the diary following one another in quick and grievous succession on the same page that records august fifteenth paid fifteen pounds for my wig we read mr benjamin bicknell's child died of the throat distemper two days later mr petty's daughter died of the throat d aged five paid four pounds for a hat for my son 
every day through the rest of the year they were dying the little children of what we may suppose was diphtheria or some kindred affection it was a dreadful time on november twenty first we read fast day at mr bailey's parish on account of the throat distemper prevailing there mr colton preached from two jeremiah thirty in vain have i smitten your children ye received no correction there had been a similar epidemic in seventeen thirty five and thirty six in twelve months nine hundred and eighty four died of the distemper by far the greater part under ten years of age the woeful effects of original sin remarks a pious writer of the time all this time little abigail smith has been waiting patiently in her cradle now her turn has come remarkable woman as she was perhaps the most striking fact in her life was that she lived why or how any puritan baby survived its tribulations one hardly knows that is any baby born in winter and late november is winter in new england within a few days of its birth the baby was taken to the meeting-house to be baptized the meeting-house unwarmed as we have seen from year's end to year's end the wolf cold waiting to receive the poor lamb with jaws opened wider than those grinned on the outer walls of the building this expedition often completed the baby's earthly career of judge sewell's fourteen children but three survived him a majority dying in infancy and of fifteen children of his friend cotton mather but two survived their father we are not actually told that the christening expedition killed them but we may infer it in many cases the baby slept in a hooded cradle before going to his christening he must be carried upstairs with silver and gold in his hand and scarlet laid on his head to keep him from harm if he had fits or rickets he was largely dosed with snail water to make the admirable and most famous snail water you must take a peck of garden shell snails wash them well in small beer and put them in an oven till they have done making a noise then take them out and wipe them well from the green froth that is upon them and bruise them shells and all in a stone mortar then take a quart of earthworms scour them with salt slit them and but perhaps you do not wish to make snail water even the most admirable and famous and after all we have no reason to think that abigail smith had rickets though she was a delicate child she was not thought strong enough to go to school possibly in any case it might not have been thought necessary for her the education of woman was little thought of in those days indeed she herself says in one of her letters that it was fashionable to ridicule female learning in another letter written the year before her death she says my early education did not partake of the abundant opportunities which the present days offer and which even our common country schools now afford i never was sent to any school i was always sick female education in the best families went no further than writing and arithmetic in some few and rare instances music and dancing how then did abigail get her education easily enough school was not necessary for her she loved books and there were plenty of them not only in parson smith's study but in the home of her grandfather colonel john quincy then living at mount wollaston not far from weymouth 
a great part of her childhood was spent with her grandparents and to her grandmother quincy in particular she always felt that she owed a great deal i have not forgotten she writes to her own daughter in seventeen ninety five the excellent lessons which i received from my grandmother at a very early period of life i frequently think they made a more durable impression upon my mind than those which i received from my own parents whether it was owing to the happy method of mixing instruction and amusement together or from an inflexible adherence to certain principles the utility of which i could not but see and approve when a child i know not but maturer years have rendered them oracles of wisdom to me i love and revere her memory her lively cheerful disposition animated all around her whilst she edified all by her unaffected piety this tribute is due to the memory of those virtues the sweet remembrance of which will flourish though she has long slept with her ancestors we can fancy the child sitting by the delightful grandmother imbibing instruction and amusement working the while at her sampler or setting delicate stitches in a shirt for her father or grandfather girls do not make the family shirts nowadays but i know one dear lady who at seven years old was set down at her grandmother's side to cut and make a shirt for her grandfather taking every stitch herself we can see abigail too browsing among colonel quincy's bookshelves reading shakespeare and dryden and pope and prior the spectator too and all the history she could lay her hands on and perhaps the novels of mr richardson mr fielding mr smollett three young men who were making a great stir in those days she wrote letters too in the fashion of the time endless letters to girlfriends in weymouth or boston highfalutin in language but full of good sense and good feeling we elders are always sighing give us ah give us but yesterday and i cannot help deploring the decay of letter-writing says charles francis adams in the admirable memoir with which he prefaces his collections of the letters of john and abigail adams perhaps there is no species of exercise in early life more productive of results useful to the mind than that of writing letters over and above the mechanical facility of constructing sentences which no teaching will afford so well the interest with which the object is commonly pursued gives an extraordinary impulse to the intellect this is promoted in a degree proportionate to the scarcity of temporary and local subjects for discussion where there is little gossip the want of it must be supplied from books the love of literature springs up where the weeds of scandal take no root the young ladies of massachusetts in the last century were certainly readers even though only self-taught and their taste was not for the feeble and nerveless sentiment or the frantic passion which comes from the novels and romances in the circulating library of our day but was derived from the deepest wells of english literature the poets and moralists of the mother country furnished to these inquiring minds their ample stores and they were used to an extent which is at least doubtful if the more pretending and elaborate instruction of the present generation would equal however this may be and i believe every word of it myself we must all be thankful that abby smith formed the letter-writing habit early in life if she had not we might have lacked one of the most vivid pictures of life in revolutionary times her girlhood letters those at least to her girlfriends were signed diana and were addressed to myra aspasia calliope aurelia 
later in writing to her faithful friend lover and husband portia was the name she chose a name that suited her well here is a letter written in her girlhood to her friend mrs lincoln weymouth five october seventeen sixty one my dear friend does not my friend think me a stupid girl when she has kindly offered to correspond with me that i should be so senseless as to not accept the offer senseless and stupid i would confess myself and that to the greatest degree if i did not foresee the many advantages i shall receive from corresponding with a lady of your known prudence and understanding i gratefully accept your offer although i may be charged with vanity in pretending to entertain you with my scrawls yet i know your generosity is such that like a kind parent you will bury in oblivion all my imperfections i do not aim at entertaining i write merely for the instruction and edification which i shall receive provided you honour me with your correspondence you bid me tell one of my sparks i think that was the word to bring me to see you why i believe you think they are as plenty as herrings when alas there is as great a scarcity of them as there is of justice honesty prudence and many other virtues i've no pretensions to one wealth wealth is the only thing that is looked after now tis said plato thought if virtue would appear to the world all mankind would be enamoured with her but now interest governs the world and men neglect the golden mean but to be sober i should really rejoice to come and see you but if i wait till i get a what did you call em i fear you'll be blind with age i can say in the length of this epistle i've made the golden rule mine pray my friend do not let it be long before you write to your ever affectionate a s one feels sure that abigail was a good child as well as a bright one she was not an infant prodigy one is glad to think parents and grandparents were too sensible to play tricks with her mind or her soul one sighs to read of the pious and ingenious jane turrell a puritan child who could relate many stories out of the scriptures before she was two years old before she was four years old she could say the greater part of the assembly's catechism many of the psalms read distinctly and make pertinent remarks on many things she read she asked many astonishing questions about divine mysteries it is comforting to know that jane liked green apples her father at the end of a pious letter adjures her as she loves him not to eat them but it shows that after all she was a human child we do not know much about the diet of puritan children parson smith was a good farmer killed his own pork and beef planted apple trees made cider etc we may suppose that abigail had plenty of good fish and flesh with a salad now and then and corn squash and pumpkins at her desire pompions the latter were often called while squash were variously known as squanter squash ascuda squash is quoker squash all indian variants of the one name which we clip into a monosyllable wheat did not grow well in the colonies oaten and rye meal was chiefly used in combination with the universal corn they had hasty pudding boiled in a bag or fried succahash and johnny cake or journey cake which we have changed by the insertion of an h till it appears as if johnny had either invented or owned it parched corn our popcorn a favorite food of the indians was also highly appreciated by the colonists 
they were amazed at first sight of it governor winthrop explains carefully how on being parched the corn turns entirely inside out and is white and floury within sometimes they made it into no cake which is we are told indian corn parched in the hot ashes the ashes being sifted from it it is afterwards beaten to powder and put into a long leathern bag trussed like a knapsack out of which they take thrice three spoonfuls a day this was considered wonderfully sustaining food it was mixed before eating with snow in winter with water in summer the pumpkins were made into pies cakes bread sauce we have pumpkins at morning and pumpkins at noon if it were not for pumpkins we should be undone potatoes were brought over from england as early as sixteen thirty six but were not grown till some time later people were still afraid of them some thought that if a man eat them every day he could not live beyond seven years some again fancied the balls were the edible portion and did not much desire them nor were the recipes for cooking them especially inviting the accomplished cook much in use about the year seventeen hundred says that potatoes must be boiled and blanched seasoned with nutmeg and cinnamon and pepper mixed with eringo roots dates lemon and whole mace covered with butter sugar and grape verjuice made with pastry then iced with rose-water and sugar and he clept a secret pie let us hope that mrs smith a quincy-born knew better than to torture and overwhelm a worthy vegetable we know little of this good lady but we may suppose that she was a notable housewife since her daughter in later life showed such skill in all household arts we shall see by and by how abigail baked and brewed spun and wove clothed and fed and cared for her family often with little or no assistance we may fancy her now trotting about after mother smith at weymouth or grandmother quincy at wollaston her bright eyes noting everything her quick fingers mastering all the arts of preserving candying distilling there was a passion for such work among the new england women in those days they made preserves and conserves marmalettes and quidneys hypocras and household wines uscabarbs and cordials they candied fruits and made syrups they preserved everything that would bear preserving i have seen old-time recipes for preserving quinces respas pippins apricocks plums damsons peaches oranges lemons artichokes green walnuts elecampane roots eringo roots grapes barberries cherries recipes for syrup of clove gillyflower wormwood mint aniseed clove elder lemons marigold citron hyssop licorice recipes for conserves of roses violets borage flowers rosemary betony sage mint lavender marjoram and peony rules for candying fruit berries and flowers for poppy water cordial cherry water lemon water thyme water angelica water aqua mirabilis aqua celestis clary water mint water good living was cheap in abigail's childhood an english traveller visiting boston in seventeen forty writes thus their poultry of all sorts are as fine as can be desired and they have plenty of fine fish of various kinds all of which are very cheap 
take the butcher's meat altogether in every season of the year i believe it is about two pence per pound sterling the best beef and mutton lamb and veal are often sold for sixpence per pound of new england money which is some small matter more than one penny sterling poultry in their season are exceeding cheap as good a turkey as may be bought for about two shillings sterling as we can buy in london for six or seven and as fine a goose for tenpence as would cost three shillings and sixpence or four shillings in london the cheapest of all the several kinds of poultry are a sort of wild pigeon which are in season the latter end of june and so continue until september they are large and finer than those we have in london and are sold here for eighteen pence a dozen and sometimes for half of that fish too is exceedingly cheap they sell a fine fresh cod that will weigh a dozen pounds or more just taken out of the sea for about two pence sterling they have smelts too which they sell as cheap as sprats are in london salmon too they have in great plenty and these they sell for about a shilling apiece which will weigh fourteen or fifteen pounds shad strange to say was profoundly despised in puritan times they were fed to the hogs in seventeen thirty three they sold two for a penny and it was not at all the thing to eat them or at least to be seen eating them a story is told of a family in hadley massachusetts who were about to dine on a shad and who hearing a knock at the door delayed opening it till shad and platter had been hustled out of sight they have venison very plenty they will sell as fine a haunch for half a crown as would cost full thirty shillings in england bread is much cheaper than we have in england but is not near so good butter is very fine and cheaper than ever i bought any in london the best is sold all summer for three pence a pound but as for cheese it is neither cheap nor good and milk was one penny a quart but we shall see great changes before we finish our story these were the years of plenty of the fat kine and the full ears of corn eat your fill abigail drink your milk while it is a penny a quart the lean years are coming when you will pinch and scrape and use all your wit and ability to feed and clothe your family and will look back with a sigh on these full years of your childhood End of chapter one